and welcome to a brand new season and a new episode of Chipping Away, where your host Sakash Indurga take you on journeys of South Asia, its history, archaeology, art, and everything in between. Thank you for tuning in to a brand new season of Chipping Away. Generally, we perceive the world as composed of dualities, evil and good, or dark and light, or other dualities like present or absent. But have you ever tinkered your mind that there could be third possibility or a multitude of more possibilities exactly as you said the world is not split between two extremes everything and everyone is probably in between the two so we are never either or but forever are mhm that's very well put and to discuss this idea further in archaeology we have a special guest with us today Today we have with us Mr. Scott Coleman, a PhD student in public history from the Carleton University, Ottawa. Hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hello. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thank you. So, what do you do? I work at a site called Chatterhoyak. It's in uh, Yozgat Province in north central Anatolia, Turkey. The settlement has an occupation period from about 4000 BCE right up to the uh, Seljuk period possibly into 12th century, maybe into the earlier 13th. But I particularly work on the Middle Byzantine period of the settlement. So I work up on the top of the Hoyak Mound, looking at roughly around the 11th century context. So my main research currently is how what we call Byzantine society and Byzantines. I want to look at how they are represented and presented in a museum context, specifically Canadian museums. I'm not a very big fan of the term Byzantine or Byzantium and never have been. And those who know me know me to be very outspoken about it. My goal is to hope to inform people that the people that we represent as Byzantines were in fact Romans. Many of them identified as Romans or they identified as Armenians, Arabs, Slavs, Peshnegs, everything, right? I mean, it's very multicultural, multi-ethnic society. And so my goal is to help kind of promote that and really transform the discussion about what the society is in the museum context. So tell us a little bit more about the Byzantines. Who are they? Where were they from? So the Byzantines, like I said, are actually Romans. They are basically, when we talk about the Byzantine Empire, we're talking about the eastern half of the Roman Empire. There is a lot of debate about when we would categorize the start of the Byzantine Empire. Most scholarship would say that it was during the founding of Constantinople by Constantine the Great. Most people probably know who that is. Others will look at it in terms, say, numismatics. They'll start it with the coin reforms of Anastasius around 498. And so the Byzantine numismatics will start later than the actual history of the Byzantine Empire. The empire kind of stretched at its height all the way into the Middle East, the Levant area, northern Africa, so Egypt, right across through where Tunisia is, and then westward all the way out through modern-day Spain during the Justinian conquest. So it kind of fluctuates. It's a very uh, porous border. It's a very malleable border. It moves a lot over the years. The traditional chronological time span is from Constantine to the capture of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, I believe. Yes, I think we in India drilled the date 1453 because that is the start of the Middle Ages. 
that's a good point to bring up is that because it shows you how relative our labeling of time periods is, right? In terms of our fields of focus. Like I look at the medieval period, Middle Ages, a little bit earlier than 1453, right? I think it begins a lot earlier than that. But it's all about context and how we explore our our own topics, right? And it's kind of interesting that you say it that way. So going back, you bring out this interesting point of discussion about the Byzantines and how they are actually Romans. So why does modern academia differentiate between the two? Whew. I mean, this could go back to our dear friend Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Fall of the Roman Empire. And it kind of slanders the Eastern Romans uh, as Greeks and so on and so forth. Uh, it's not a very... Uh, great representation of those who live in that side. But it's not that he outright says that they're Byzantines. He more refers to the uh, site in which Constantinople is founded, which was in Greek called Byzantium. But it kind of stems from this Orientalist approach of othering the eastern part of, of the empire. And this has to do more, I think, more on the religious side of things in terms of Western Christianity versus Eastern Christianity and the orthodoxy, right? But it really takes shape in the mid to late 19th century. The term is really applied uh, more as a discipline itself. It really is used to kind of other and create that distinction from the classical Roman society. And it's really used to kind of make the Byzantine Empire effeminate. It looks at them as a society of schemers, eunuchs, women who are trying to take over the throne, men who are trying to take over the throne. It's corrupt. The Byzantine term itself means overly complicated, if anything, so complex. And it kind of stems from there. And it just kind of latched on and stuck. And I remember starting in graduate school and one of the first classes I took when I was told, well, they're Romans, but we call them Byzantines. I'm like, well, why the hell would we call them Byzantines then? Like, why? Why do we stick to this? Every other uh, discipline is trying to address these issues of colonizing names and orientalizing names and removing them and change their name because these terms have very certain connotations to them. But yet our field seems to be stuck on calling ourselves Byzantine. Now, I will put a caveat in there that not everybody thinks this way in our field. I don't want to be slandering all Byzantinists and going, oh, we're all wrong. But there is a movement now to really address the ethnic identities of those who live within this society and really start looking at why we're using these terms. So this brings to mind the imikinetic perspective in a sort of clash, maybe, where people self-identify themselves as something while they are labeled as something else in popular literature that goes around the globe and continues to be so for centuries together. And I also wonder if you would be able to speak to the problem of this identification in general in the field of archaeology and history. Yeah, I can try to do that for sure. I mean, you can see this as multiple examples. I mean, I'll kind of go back to the Romans a little bit, even in the Greek city-states and so on and so forth. You know, this idea of barbarians and us, right? You know, that's there. And these people, say, in terms of Roman identity in the early empire and later republic, naming people as barbarians, well, obviously these people didn't call themselves barbarians, right? Some of these were Germanic tribes, Slavic tribes, and they obviously have their own identifiers, yet 
we kind of cling on to Roman sources in a way that this is kind of like how it was, right? And this is due to the fact that this is what survives in historical records. And speaking to archaeological records, I mean, it's very difficult to associate names to material culture. And yet we seem to do this by with broad swoops of larger labels that are supposed to encompass everything. One such example would be urban versus rural. Well, what's an urban site and what's a rural site? And these terms are more loaded with modern definitions than they are even with past definitions. Now, it does refer to like the more of a city living style and to my understanding of the definition. It's about how one lives within the city, but it doesn't refer to the city as a whole, like what is urban. And so then you go, okay, well, what are the boundaries of that? What is the boundaries of an urban setting? And then if there's a boundary to the urban setting, where does the rural setting begin? Right outside the boundary? Or is there a space in between? What is this? What is this urban-rural dichotomy, right? And then when we start labeling things as urban or rural, then it places a hierarchy of importance onto these sites. That stems from a very traditional heteronormative way of approaching things in past archaeology where, you know, we went for the cities, we wanted the monuments, we wanted the grand structures, we wanted the artwork, the, uh, and especially with the Byzantine stuff, it was like, like, let's look at the Christian stuff, right? And, and so it creates these dichotomies where it makes one area less important than the other. And this is some of the stuff we want to kind of get rid of because obviously the two centers are interlinked with each other. They depend on each other. So these structures and that we have placed on them in terms of urban and rural really stems from early 20th century geography and the theories that were used to kind of understand how cities were developing, mostly how they're industrializing, and especially post-World War II. These categories really came into their own for studying modern context, but then we took them and started applying them to the ancient world and we're like, it's not really the proper way of doing it, in my opinion. Let's look at it from a different perspective in terms of archaeology and how would we do archaeology in North America and especially, let's say, within the, the American and Canadian context. And if we're doing excavations of Indigenous peoples' spaces and territories, are we going to label that an urban or rural, right? And should we be doing that? I mean, there's a lot of ethical questions behind these kinds of things that sometimes we just, I think, take for granted and we just throw these things on. Now, I'm just as guilty as everybody else who does this. I mean, part of the time you have to because that's the language in which we're using to get our ideas across. But, I mean, hypothetically to say one Iroquois settlement was larger than a Mi'kmaq settlement, therefore that one's more urban and that one's rural. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And it has no bearing on how some of these past societies perceive themselves. I can totally see this happening also in South Asian context, where sites are routinely categorized as urban settlements, rural settlements, or sometimes rural-urban, where they are in between, or sometimes satellite settlements and things like that based on archaeological data or fragmentary literary evidence, if it is a medieval site or beyond. But again, even personally, I question these labels and that is a good point that you raise here to reorient our lens, to look at this imposition of modern perspective on categorizing spaces. And this also ties back to the labeling of certain social groups as something, especially in the context of British colonial India, where certain social groups were termed as tribes, as nomadic tribes, as scheduled tribes, as disenfranchised tribes, or scheduled castes, a plethora of labels. 
But again, that was a top-down labeling from a very colonial perspective of what they thought the people are and categorized people as urban, rural, or tribal. There comes a question of equity and who really is the person making these decisions of labeling people or even othering somebody. And here's a good example of uh, the othering of societies and how we want to kind of create these categories and labels that isolate and distinguish people from each other and kind of removes these social and cultural interactions that they really had, even economic, political interactions. The use of the terms or the labels of Arab invasions or the Muslim incursions during the uh, 7th century, late 7th century into the early 8th century. When you say things like that, what it insinuates is that these people never interacted with the Roman society beforehand, or Roman society never interacted with the Arab communities beforehand. So it creates this break in the chronological scheme of things where we always want to look at things linear and doesn't look at things as a holistic value, right? So that's another example where you look at these sites and, and even the wording in some of the old research is just like, oh, you know, this was maybe uh, De Hess might be a perfect example. The lost cities or the dead cities, sorry, I should say that's what they're referred to as the dead cities in Syria, is that, you know, it was a Roman population. They're beautifully preserved in a certain way. And then all of a sudden the Arabs came in. And it's like the Arab tribes weren't there before. There weren't interactions with these people. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, again, in my opinion. I second your opinion. You are a pioneer of queer archaeology. Could you tell us more about that? I wouldn't use pioneer, but (laughs) I like the idea of queer archaeology and queer theory in archaeology. I kind of wanted to touch on queer theory, my MA thesis. The theory is meant, and how I use it, is to disrupt heteronormative narratives in traditional archaeological research. So queer allows you to remove the traditional binaries that we examine things. And then taking other methods, applying it through a queer lens, therefore to deconstruct what a site might be about. So for example, a particular Hoyek when they excavated it before it was flooded, you know, the narrative is, okay, it has a fortification wall. We found these things in here. Yeah, there's some stuff outside, but we're mostly focused on the stuff inside. And it's a military structure. And it probably oppressed the people around them. That's kind of a heteronormal approach to fortifications and the archaeology of these sites. Now, some of these places were very rushed in terms of their archaeology. So you have to give them a little bit of leeway on a sense of what they're picking in terms of, okay, we're going to do our trench here. We're going to do our trench in the lower south side. We're going to do our trench in the northern east side. And from there, we have to try to figure it out because we don't have much time. But at the same time, they do understand that there is settlement around this space. And we pick what we want. Okay, well, there's a fortification up there. So let's get that because that's more important. And it creates, again, that what you were talking about earlier, that top-down kind of effect. And that's very linear. It's very binary. It's fortification versus the settlement. It creates opposition. It creates fragmentation. And it doesn't allow for any kind of uh, dialogue for peoples to interact with each other within these spaces. Queer allows you to look at that and go, okay, well, is that correct? Right. And what if we looked at it from a different parameter that maybe this isn't a military installation? Just because it has a fortification wall doesn't mean it's military. It might be there for protection, but protection doesn't necessarily mean military. Right. One of the ideas is about Chatterhoyak, which is the site I work at, is that it was more of a collection point for taxes. We have a fortification wall 
late Roman period, fourth century or so. And then there was a building process of a larger fortification that enclosed the whole site around the ninth, 10th century. Then they refortified it in the 11th century because I guess they knew something bad was coming and they had to get ready for it. And something bad did happen and everybody got killed. But the idea that it was just a fortification, a military installation is kind of not correct. The proposal is that it was more of like, say, a tax collection area, you know, goods and fodder for animals and people. Like, So taxes are not just collected in coins, but they're collected in kind. Well, when you're collecting all these taxes, where are you going to store them, right? So these are areas they may protect the goods, and you may have military personnel there. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a military outpost. So looking at the Euphrates side of things, that was one of my contentions about this one particular site was like, queer takes that uh, and blows it away and go, okay, let's re-examine it using the methods that we traditionally use, but from a more spherical sense, I guess, instead of looking at it linearly. And I also wonder how it can be expanded for other ancient societies about which we know so little. Well, like even looking at artwork, say Egyptian artwork, this is where I'm referring to Nathan Clembera. He wrote a little blog about this and there is some artwork in Egypt where the point was is there's these two males facing each other, but they're facing each other in a traditional way that a man and woman would be shown as being married. And the point here is that they're often labeled as brothers and close friends, but why does that have to be? The positioning of them in this kind of painting shows them in a more traditional marital kind of process for that particular period. So could they have been partners? Could they have been gay, queer, whatever labels that they used during that period, if they had those labels, because we can't assume that either. But why do we have to go brothers, friends, close friends, right? So that's one of the examples that queer does is it takes even through artwork in Egypt and go, okay, well, let's re-examine this. Why do we have to say this? Because I think most of us will agree is it's developed during a colonial period. Um, very imperialistic period, right? And these structures are meant for control and controlling narratives and controlling the power in which the imperial or colonial groups are going to inflict onto the other people. We're better. We know more. This is what we're telling you about your history. And queer allows you to remove those things. And if I can draw from a similar example in South Asia, that is about how most of the narratives about same-sex relationships or expressions through art were totally turned on its head, so to speak, with the interpretation in British colonial reports and records as being an anomaly or something that needs to be shut down or sort of sidelined. It could be through sculptures at Khajuraho or at other places, or even some of the frescoes in palaces and havelis in Rajasthan and other parts of India, where there was an acknowledgement of intersex, transgender, homosexual population within the courtly or non-courtly scenes. So this just brings to mind these layers of shutting down the narrative, so to speak, and This is a really breakthrough to look at it through queer theory and to open it up for a newer layer of interpretation. These older ways of exploring the past, they're kind of like erasers of history, right? They're trying to cherry pick what they want. This is not to say they all did it again. That's my caveat. I mean, I don't accuse every person of doing this. Whether you did it intentionally or not, it's a different story. Sometimes we do things unintentionally because that's 
our training. That's the way we were brought up through the educational system. But I think that's a good point you brought up, Derek. Like they're formed as erasers. I always think the paradox of all this is that we are isolating certain things to study them. We create this value system on it that props them up on a pedestal or highlights them, go look, and then we want to separate it from other structures of society. What if this was so normal and people didn't even think twice about it? It was just, we're not going to identify this as a particular thing and put it in a category and go, yeah, that's special. What if it was just day-to-day life, right? And then here we are, we're, we're kind of manipulating this away. So and then it begs the question, what is the proper way of approaching this stuff? You know, what do we do? Are we even doing history properly? Or, and then again, a whole bag of worms, and then you just get depressed that you're even in academia, and then you just want to go home and cry and drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. <laughs> I could just think of another instance from one of my courses on religion and gender, where we were talking about the two-spirited in First Nations communities. And in some cases, the prominent elders from the society who were two-spirited were considered as respectable elders because they were good with carpet making and they were making profit for the colonizers, showcasing their carpet making skills at XYZ Expo in England or in the US or things like that. So their presence was acknowledged, but their identity or their sexuality was never discussed in open. And it was just left as something that is not within the purview of the colonists. So it was an interesting push and pull. Yeah, that's a great example because it is a very interesting dialogue that is happening in terms of how much of my gender representation do you need to know? In terms, do you need to know my actual sexuality? But to apply labels to the past and say this person is this and this, when they never specifically said it themselves, becomes a very slippery slope, I think, in terms of how we perform history. So now and then you take that and translate it to the past and you have 2000 years of gap or 3000 years, 4000 years, you know, like who's to say how far back we go with this? I mean, it's the problem of using, I guess, modern constructs to examine the past. Thank you, Scott. That was indeed a lot of food for thought. And it is interesting to reshape our thinking about the world in the past and in the present. So let us pause here for today. Let us take some time to digest all these nuggets of information and let us reconvene for our next episode where we talk more about the material applications in archaeology for queer theory, gender theory and beyond. So we'll meet soon and until then, keep chipping away. Bye-bye. Chippin' Away is available on all major streaming websites such as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and so on. So go ahead, subscribe wherever you feel comfortable or you can just log in to Buzzsprout and check out Chippin' Away. We have a new episode coming up every fortnight, that is after every 15 days, so twice a month. Each episode comes with a new theme new points for discussion, and something for us to take back and ponder on. So join us in our journey of understanding our collective past better and to question 
the existing and new theories and models that we encounter every so often. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ChipInAwayIND. And drop us a line about your comments, inputs, and what you would like to hear from us at ChipInAwayIND at gmail.com. In this current environment of chaos, uncertainty, and a lot of tension that surrounds us with the pandemic, impending lockdown, and other restrictions, let Chip in a Way be your little moment of recluse from the world around you. Help us make this little movement a little more better by reading the blog posts that go with our podcasts and other discussions online and offline. For the blogs, you can check out www.klmit.com. That is K-A-L-E-M-I-G-H-T-Y dot com. We have all the links in the description for our podcast and you can check it out online on Google, Spotify and other major streaming sites. So see you again in a matter of 15 days with a new topic, a new theme and something new to pick your brain with. Till then, keep chipping away, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye.